Good morning, beloved. Today's scripture reading will be from the book of Exodus, chapter 15, verse 22, through chapter 16, verse 12. If you would like a Bible, there's a Bible in your pew, you can turn to page 57. If you want to take that Bible with you, that is a gift to you from the church. Exodus chapter 15, verse 22 through 16, verse 12. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Myra, they, they could not drink the water of Myra because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Mara. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statue and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord, your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. On the 15th day of the second month, after they had departed from the land of Egypt, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full? For you have brought us into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that they may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, at evening, you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning, you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat in the morning, bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked to, towards the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in a cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. This is the word of God. Morning. First, some bad news. If you own a white Volvo XC90, your lights are on. Go to the back parking lot, 5EP0123, that's the license plate. No one will look if you have to get up right now, it's okay. 
All right, now some good news. We're back in the book of Exodus. From slavery to glory. Change the background. It was the Red Sea parting. Now it's the two tablets signifying the, the Ten Commandments, which is coming up soon. Exodus. Let me give you a quick summary of where we are, kind of get you all up to speed. We're in Exodus 15 and 16 today. They read a portion of 16, but we're looking at the whole chapter 16. So Exodus 1 to 15, the first section of Exodus, the major theme was the Lord saves. The Lord saves. Exodus begins with the Israelites enslaved in Egypt. They've been there for hundreds of years, and they're crying out to God, and God hears their cry, cry for help, and he raises up a leader named Moses to go and rescue his people out of slavery. And God, he uses the word redeem. I'm going to redeem. I'm going to take out. I'm going to rescue out. I'm going to bring them to myself. I'm going to rescue them out of slavery to this wicked king, Pharaoh, in order for them to worship me, their true king, Yahweh. And along the way, not only do the Israelites have to grow in their understanding of who this God is, who Yahweh really is, but, God, but Moses has to grow in his understanding as well. You see, God is shaping both the leader and the people to know God, trust God, and follow God. And after many plagues, Pharaoh finally lets the Israelites go. They, they rush out of Egypt in a hurry, and they get to the shore of the Red Sea, and they're, they're looking back, and all of a sudden, Pharaoh's army is coming back. Pharaoh changes his mind. He's like, what was I thinking? And I got the Red Sea in front of them, and, the, and Pharaoh and the army behind them, and they cry out to God. In fact, they grumble, but Moses cries out to God. He raises his staff up. And the Red Sea opens and parts, and the Israelites cross out on dry land. And then the Egyptian army tries to cross, oh, let's go get them. But the Red Sea closes up on the Egyptians and swallows them up, and Pharaoh is no more. Exodus 15, they're on the other side of the Red Sea now. Their former slave master is gone. He has, God has not just taken them out of that slave master. He has done away with that slave master. There's no going back. And Exodus 15 begins with this song of celebration by the Israelites. They're overwhelmed by the power of God, the love of God to rescue them, and they're singing and they're dancing. And that's why Exodus 1.15 is, the Lord saves. The Lord saves. Now, the end of Exodus 15 all the way through Exodus 18 is a second major part of this book, and it's the Lord tests. The Lord tests. And if you want to put in parentheses, you can write the word trains. That's another way of saying the word tests. And so today, the Israelites are now in the wilderness. Like they're in the middle of nowhere, and it's testing time in the wilderness school. Testing time in the wilderness school. Anyone here like to take tests? Anybody weird like me? Any strange? A couple of us, yep. Overachievers like myself. Right? We, we get excited about tests. Right? We study really hard because we kind of find a, a level of self-justification in our, in our grades and our performance. There's a couple of us. But who here hates taking tests? That's what I thought. Just hearing the word test gives you a little bit of anxiety, right? Blood pressure starts going up. Even the kids in here, you don't like to hear the word test. No one likes to hear the teacher say, all right, you got the test today, or even worse, oh, pop quiz. Ah, I'm sick. Right? We, we don't like tests. Why? Tests are harder than classwork. 
harder than homework. They count for more. There's all this pressure around tests, right? In fact, there's all philosophies of education. Some of them, get, some models actually do away with tests. No more tests. And yet, we find here in this text that God is testing his people. He doesn't mince words. He doesn't kind of get skirt around the issue. God literally led them into the wilderness. They didn't just go, oh, where do we find ourselves? Oh, how do we end up here? No, God leads them out of Egypt. God leads them through the Red Sea, and now he leads them into the wilderness. He could have taken them straight. There was a shortcut. Did you know that? Chapter 14, it says God could have taken them straight through Philistia, right into the promised land, but he didn't. He intentionally led them into the wilderness. Why? Chapter 15, verse 25. Our text today, it says, and there he tested them. Chapter 16, verse 4. He says it again. That I may test them to know what is in their hearts. God led the Israelites into the wilderness to test them. To test It doesn't mean to give an assessment so that they could fail. That's not why teachers give a test. Children, if you have a teacher who's giving you a test, I'm going to assume the best about them. Good teachers give tests not to fail you, but to assess you in good ways. Now, let me be the first to admit, I had a a professor at the University of Maryland. I'm not going to name him because I don't want to shame him. I I almost did, but I won't. But he told us the first day of class, he was grading on a curve and he was doing, it was a chemistry class, it was terrible, anyway, um, and he said, I am grading on a curve in such a way that at least a third of you will fail this class so I can weed you out of this pre-med route. Great, that's exciting, thanks, sir. Is that the proper use of a test? No, to fail a number of kids, no. No, good teachers give tests to demonstrate what their students have learned so far and to show where they still need to grow. That's the purpose of a test. That's exactly what God is doing here. God is the greatest teacher ever. He's brilliant and he's also patient. He has rescued his people by grace. Right? He didn't ask them to do anything to rescue them. He rescues them out of sheer grace and now he's ready to shape them into the people who will reflect his character. In fact, the word test here literally means, in Hebrew, to train. God is training them to trust him. So now that Israel has been saved from slavery, what we see is the wilderness is actually the necessary school for their sanctification. The school for their growth. God is shaping them to be a people that are they're going to be ready to enter the promised land. Make no mistake, and please hear me because you might not you might not hear anything else today. The people are in the wilderness; they're not in the promised land, right? They're going to get there, but they're not there yet. Listen to me, Christian Church. We are not in the promised land. We are in the wilderness. That's this phase. The promised land is coming. It's not now. The promised land is coming for them. It's not now. So that's why I want you to understand why are we studying Exodus? Look, their story is our story. 
As Christians, we are redeemed, bought out, rescued out. What? How? By the blood of the lamb, the same Passover lamb. They put the blood on their doorpost and the Passover angel passes over and they're rescued. They're saved. We have crossed from death into life by God's grace, just like the Israelites. We are right now God's people, right now his children. And we are on our way to the promised land to be with God forever, face to face. We will see him, know him, worship him. But until then, we are on this difficult journey through the wilderness of life. And God is using this journey to train us. That means we're going to face disappointments, discouragements, difficulty. But the entire journey is meant to train us how to depend on God. That's how important it is. It's, it's called sanctification. That's the, the Christianese word that says it just means the long, hard, and beautiful process of God teaching us to trust Him, depend on Him, and obey Him. Testing time in the wilderness school. So lesson number one in this text. Trust God's plan for tests to strengthen your faith. Trust God's plan for tests to strengthen your faith. At the end of Exodus 15, we see God's first test in the wilderness. It was sort of a pretest. It was meant to be a kind of a low ball, a preview of tests to come, actually. Verse 22, they make it out into the wilderness. The wilderness is vast. It's rugged. It's dry. And it says they endure hard going, hard traveling for three days, and they find no water. And they finally come to what they think is an oasis of sorts, and they scramble to get some water. They're thirsty. Remember, there's millions of Israelites here in, all, in caravans and animals, and they're dying of thirst, and they get to the water, and they taste the water, and it's bitter. It's no good. And that's why they call this place Mara. Mara is the Hebrew word that means bitter. Have you ever been anywhere in the world where you couldn't drink tap water? See, we take something as simple as water for granted until clean water is no longer readily available. We have friends in Texas right now, right? They're boiling their water, right? They're, this is America, but look, if water's not good, you're in trouble. If you don't have readily available water, that's all you think about. For the Israelites, this was their first test. How would they respond to the lack of water? Would they cry out to God for help? The one who ironically, just days earlier, literally days earlier, miraculously parted the waters of the Red Sea so that they could walk on dry land? How would they respond after being rescued through water and not now having water? You think it's an accident that it's water? In verse 24 of chapter 15, it says, The people grumbled against Moses. This isn't the first time the Israelites grumble. They grumbled when they got to the edge of the Red Sea in front of them and the Egyptians behind them. They grumbled then. They said back then in chapter 14, it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. It's not the last time they're going to grumble. Grumbling is a sign of self-centeredness. We grumble because we think everything revolves around my needs, my wants, what I desire. Grumbling, grumbling is also a sign of ingratitude or being ungrateful. 
It's really an indication of immaturity. It's why as parents, what we, we, we work really hard to train our children to put off grumbling. Don't grumble. Okay, I know we're in the car for a long time, but stop grumbling. I know you don't have enough toys. You have a whole room full of toys. Please stop grumbling. Right? We want to instill a sense of gratitude, a sense of, that they're not the center of the universe. But worst of all, here's the worst thing about grumbling. Grumbling is a sign of a lack of faith. We grumble because we don't trust the faithfulness of God. Do you struggle with grumbling? Do you ever find yourself thinking, I deserve more than this? God has failed to give me the life I want. I would be much happier if I just had blank. If it weren't for this leader of this ministry, if it weren't for that pastor, if it weren't for this political leader, if it weren't for this person or that person, and we, and we grumble. Think of all the things God has done for you, Christian. Think of all of his promises, and yet how easy it is to lose perspective. Let's face it, we are much better, much better at seeing what we don't have than seeing what we do have. All we see is bitter water. All we see is our lack, what we don't have, our problems. And so we say, Mara, my life is bitter. Don't you see the trial you may be enduring right now, whatever it is, that trial may be bitter. But it doesn't have to make you bitter. The water at Mara was bitter, but it turned the hearts of the people bitter. That was the problem. Have the bitter trials of life made your heart bitter? What should the people have done? Right? They still need water, right? There, there's, there's no way around it. It's not like, oh, well, they, they could just do without it. Oh, oh, they don't have another pair of clothes. No, that's not it. It's water. They need water. What should they have done? And I know this sounds simplistic, but it's not. They should have cried out to God. They should have prayed. How do I know? Because Moses does that. They grumble to Moses, and Moses cries out to God. And what does God do in response to Moses' prayer? He graciously shows Moses. You see that piece of wood? Throw it in the water, and he throws it in the water, and the water becomes fit to drink. This is called grace. God is willing to make the water sweet even for these complainers. Because God's grace really is sweet. And then God lays out these terms for them. The end of verse 25, 26. He lays out the terms of how his people should relate to them, to him. He speaks, he says, and then they listen. He, he doesn't say, I'm calling you to figure things out on your own. You, you're smart people. No, he says, I will speak and you will obey and I will bless you. I will provide, I will protect, I will lead you. You are called to obey. You are called to listen to my word and trust my word. Now, please hear me. God is not saying here, nor does he ever say in the Bible, you must obey me blindly. That's not the God of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's not the God of the Bible. No, he's saying trust and obey me because I love you. Because I, I actually know what's best for you. 
Haven't I, ever, haven't I already proven, Israel, haven't I already proven that I will do everything to rescue you and provide for you? So when I say obey me, it's, it's obey because you can trust me, not obey because I'm, I'm some great authority, just do what I say. No, obey because I've proven myself. This is the beginning of God making clear that his covenant relationship with his people is rooted in listening and obeying his word. Whose voice are you listening to today? Who, which voices are rising to the top? Which podcast are you listening to? Which Facebook guy do you, or lady, or whoever, which news anchor do you, and you're like, that's the voice I trust. I'm simply saying, God's simply saying, my voice should rise to the top. It's part of the test. Because there, will, there have always been and there will always be other voices. That's the problem. Don't expect one hour a week you get the word of God and think the rest of the week, I'm good. Try eating one hour a week and see how that goes. All right, we'll come back to that. I'm off my notes. <laughs> Do you see how God is training his people? How he's training us? Right? We're redeemed by grace, just like the Israelites. God did everything to rescue us from sin and death that we deserved through his son, Jesus Christ, and now he calls us to obey and follow his word. Obedience is not the basis of our salvation. It, is the, it flows from our salvation. Every day there are tests that are going to confront us, and we will have to say, do I trust God's word or do I trust my own understanding? Here's the beauty of God's grace. Even in their grumbling, even in our grumbling, God hears the cry of Moses interceding for his people and he graciously leads them to a place, verse 27, called Elam, where there is a real oasis in the midst of a desert, a place of abundance and refreshment. It talks about 70 palm trees and 12 springs of water. Can you see what God is saying? What you think is impossible, Israel, I can make happen. What you think is impossible, Christian, God can make happen. He can provide rest. He can provide nourishment. He can provide relief. He can provide provision. What do you need today? He can provide it. You have to trust him. Trust God's plan that the tests in your life are there to strengthen your faith. Number two, lesson number two, trust in God's provision for your daily needs. Chapter 16, this is the second test. It's the whole chapter. It's the most important, one of the most important stories in the Bible. It, this story, the, the story of God providing manna from heaven is referred to many times in the Old Testament and New Testament. It's always referred back to as like a, a pivotal moment in the life of God's people. After being refreshed in Elam, the people of Israel are now deep into the wilderness again. Millions of people slowly making their way toward the promised land. They've already grumbled about the lack of food and God, uh, lack of water and God graciously provided. And now they grumble about the lack of food. Not, not surprising, the first two tests are about the basic necessities of life. Food and water. Right? God is trying to say, do you trust me to provide for your daily needs? That's, the, that's the, one of the primary tests in the wilderness. It's one of the primary tests in the wilderness. Do you trust God to provide for your daily needs? Over and over, we see Israel grumbling against God. 
And I want to make a distinction here. This came up in a discussion meeting we had this week. There's, what are they doing wrong? They're complaining against God, which, can I just say, is different than complaining to God. They're complaining against God. We've talked about this here. If you've been around here months, years, you know, we, we've talked about what biblical complaint looks like. Complaining to God is, is a form of lament. It's, it's the psalmist saying, how long, O oh Lord? Will you forget us forever? God, help us. It looks like you've abandoned us, right? You, you complain to God. You're co- complaining to God is being honest with God about the brokenness of life. You're just being honest with him. God, life feels broken in this way, and you fill in the blank. But you see, complaining to God is rooted in faith. The reason you're going to God and complaining is because you trust Him. You just don't understand His ways. Complaining against God is questioning His goodness. It's rooted in unbelief. So, complain to God. Don't complain against God. Look at verse 2 and 3 of chapter 16. They can't find water. They grumble and uh, food. They, can't, they grumble against Moses and Aaron. And, and the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. This is their description of slavery in Egypt. Forget all the slave drivers. Forget the making, making bricks without straw. Forget the killing of the babies. Forget the genocide and infanticide. Oh, when we were back in Egypt, we remember the days. It was glorious. We had all the food we want, all the meat we want, all the bread we want, and now we're dying here in the wilderness. Moses, that's how we remember it. This is insulting to God, isn't it? And it's not true. God, it, it, was be- it would have been better if you didn't rescue us. I've said this many times, quoting my counseling professor. When life stinks, our perspective shrinks. When you're going through a trial, it, you, you lose perspective. And, and it's really easy. Listen, it's really easy and really tempting to idealize the past. Oh, church was so amazing back then. Oh, marriage was so amazing back then. So much better back then. My kids were so much easier when. When they were much younger or now that they're a little bit older. You know why that's so dangerous? Because it causes you to lose sight of reality. Was it really so much better back then? Maybe in some ways. I'm not denying it. Yeah, is there times in history where you're like, yes, this was a beautiful time. This was a wonderful time. Yeah, but you know what? It was probably also really hard. Because it wasn't paradise, was it? It wasn't the promised land, was it? You were still in the wilderness. It was just a different part of the wilderness. It might have been Elam. I don't know. Life is hard, period. And the hard simply changes. So rather than dreaming of days gone by or the good old days, God calls us to find our hope and our satisfaction in Him and not in a time period. Because He's the one who never changes. He's the one who never leaves us nor forsakes us. Trust that God is at work in your life today. Today. That He's redeemed you not to leave you, but to finish the work that He started. 
How would you respond if your people yet again grumbled after you've provided everything they've needed so far? Verse 4, God says, Behold, I am about to rain down fire from heaven and consume my people. Nope. Verse 4, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. And then God says in verse 7, I'm going to reveal my glory to my people. Here's what my glory looks like. It looks like generously providing for them in the wilderness. Again, this is to test them, to train them. Will they listen to God's voice and humbly obey? God is saying, I'm going to show my faithfulness to you again. Will you be faithful to me? He says, I'm going to provide manna. And in verse 31, we find it's this flaky, bread-like substance they find every morning. Verse 31, it, it resembles coriander seed, and it was white, and it tasted like, it says, like wafers made with honey. That sounds good. I mean, it sounds nice. And God says, I'm going to provide it miraculously. Today, we work for bread, don't we? We have to. That's how it's supposed to be. The Apostle Paul says, if you're not willing to work, you shouldn't eat. That's, that's kind of the principle. But we take, for, we, we take bread for granted. Even though we work for bread, we actually don't really work for bread. We work for everything else. We just say bread is kind of a given. We have so many kinds of bread. Which bread shall I choose? But the Israelites in the wilderness couldn't work for bread. In the promised land, he literally said, the day you get in the promised land, the manna will stop and you will, you will work for your own bread. You'll have grain, you'll have vines, and you'll do your own work. But in the wilderness, here's how I'm going to provide. By grace. Miraculously. You, have to you, you will have to receive my daily grace every single day, people. And God says it's going to be enough to feed them every day. If you continue reading chapter 16, every day the Israelites are to go out, gather as much manna as they could, and they would eat it that day, daily bread. And even if some gathered more and some gathered less, verse 17, every family had as much as they needed. That's pretty awesome. Here's the lesson. God's provision was sufficient. It wasn't too little. It wasn't overabundant where they just kind of take it for granted. It was sufficient. And that's how the manna was a test of their faith. Would they trust that God would provide enough for them every single day? And then he gives them very, very specific warnings. Don't hoard the manna. Don't gather enough up for today and then try to keep some for later. Verse 20, that when they did that, they found that the manna rotted. It didn't last. They failed that test. They're failing to trust God's word. And so God's training them. Do it again tomorrow. Now start over. Learn the proper way. Enough for your daily bread. Isn't that what Jesus is inviting us to do when he prays this prayer in the Lord's Prayer? Give us this day our huge bank account for tomorrow. I mean, we don't get it, do we? We're focused on that. How's my 401k doing? How's my retirement path? How's this going? And God, Jesus is saying, wait, can you just start by praying, give us today our daily bread to remind yourself it doesn't matter how your 401k is doing, you need God to provide every single day. And you say, Mark, oh, you act like, no, I'm talking to myself. I, I wish I had a mirror up here, right? Pastor Brady and I should have a mirror up here. And maybe his should be a little bit bigger, but you know, we should both have mirrors up here. 
Because we're preaching to ourselves. We're preaching to ourselves. I don't know what tomorrow will hold, but I do know God is training us to trust, not in our own efforts, not our own plans, but to trust the God who will provide today. Do you believe this? Jesus said in Matthew 6:34, "Do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself." What is he saying? Tomorrow, God is saying this, "Tomorrow is my concern, not yours." And you know what we say? I don't believe you. I don't believe you. Did you know that God doesn't give tomorrow's grace today? I mean, if I were God, I mean, if I had my way, that's kind of how I would do it. But I'm not God. Thank God. One of the ways God calls the Israelites to learn to trust his provision is by calling them to observe the Sabbath. This is a precursor to when he gives the Ten Commandments and, and ordains the Sabbath. Verses 22 to 26, he, he tells them, look, every day you, you, you get enough for that day, but on the sixth day... You will gather twice as much, and on that day alone, the extra manna will not rot. It'll last another day, so that you can have a day of rest. Do you see, even in this, the Sabbath is an invitation for the people to trust God. Again, they don't trust Him, and they go out looking. On Sabbath day, seventh day comes, and the people are out there going, where's the manna? Where's the manna? And God goes, I just told you, there's no manna on Sunday. On Saturday, <laughs> sorry. Whatever day it was back then, I don't even know. He's training them. Look, one of the ways that you and I can demonstrate that we trust God is in our ability to rest. If we're always working, always busy with work, always doing something with our family, oh, we got to stay busy, we got to keep our family busy, what do we do if we're not busy? Or, at your, or your work, or even ministry, if we're always busy, it's because we're not trusting God. That we can't rest and take our hands off and go, actually, God is in control, I'm not. And every week, I'm going to take a day and go, thank you, God, that you are God. This is the wilderness school for the people of Israel. This is the wilderness school for us, God's people. God training us to trust him with daily trust. One more thing about manna. It was not just meant for physical nourishment, but for their spiritual growth. It was meant to shepherd their heart. What do I mean? In Deuteronomy, at the very end of the wilderness journey, Moses is reflecting on the manna that God had given them for 40 years, and he attaches to it a spiritual lesson. And I don't want us to miss this. Look what he, look what he says in Deuteronomy 8, verse 2 and 3. Moses says, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you, and he let you hunger, and fed you with manna. And here's the purpose. Which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Do you see what he's saying? God was not just filling their bellies, he was shepherding their hearts. 
Their experience with daily manna was meant to humble them and teach them to depend on God's word. God was training his people to be a people of his word. Christian, you need God's word every single day. Just like the Israelites needed manna every single day. Without it, you cannot live. That's why Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8 when the devil tempts him in the wilderness. Even the Son of God lived in daily dependence on God's word to nourish his soul. Are we any better? Are you living and feeding on the word of God? This is part of how God provides for your daily needs. Trust. Trust God's provision for your daily needs. And finally, trust in God's Son for your deepest needs. Here's the thing about this season of testing for the Israelites and in our test in life. They could never fully pass the test and neither could we. God was training them. God was helping them along. He was, he was exercising their muscles of faith. And yet, and yet at the end of the day, there's always this thing inside of us, this pull, pull to grumble, this pull to doubt God's goodness, this pull to question his plan, this pull to think, I know better than God. I, if I do this, I can help myself out. God, I know you're doing most things, but I think that you think you need a little bit of help. And, and so here's what I'm going to do. And so it's no surprise that when God sent his son Jesus to earth and before he even begins his earthly ministry, what does he do? He gets baptized into the water. In the Jordan River, he's baptized, kind of like the Israelites were baptized into the Red Sea, right? And then he comes up out of the water. It's like coming through the Red Sea. And where does God immediately send him? To the wilderness. To the wilderness. Are you seeing any connections? Is it, it's not an accident. The Lord sent, the Father sends him into the wilderness to do what? To be tested for 40 days. Oh, Israel was being tested for 40 years in the wilderness. Jesus was tested for 40 days. And the very first test that Satan had for him was concerning bread. And what does Jesus quote? Deuteronomy 8.3. Satan says, turn this stone into bread. You're hungry, Jesus. And Jesus said, oh no, I... I actually, I know the lesson. I wrote it. I was there. You see, it's not just about the bread. It's about leaning, depending, trusting, holding on to every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord for our nourishment. You see, through all the tests, Jesus identified with Israel's wilderness experience. He identifies with our wilderness experience. But instead of failing like us, he trusts the heart of his Father every single time. He obeyed fully. He lived a life we could never live. He is the true Israel. And then in John chapter 6, there's this culminating passage as it relates to bread and, 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 and nourishment where Jesus miraculously feeds the 5,000 and, right, and people are like amazed. Woo, this is, this is like our forefathers. You can provide bread miraculously. We're going to follow you. And Jesus realizes, you don't want to follow me. You want free bread. 
And he starts saying really hard things. And he tells them in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. And he tells them, I've come down like manna from heaven to satisfy your deepest hunger, which is your hunger for God. Our hunger for rescue from the sin inside of us that enslaves us. Our hunger to live with God forever. Our hunger to be who God has created us to be. Listen, Jesus doesn't always give us the life we want, but he meets our deepest needs. Forgiveness. Identity. Literally, an identity given. We don't have to figure it out like the world tells us. He gives us peace, unfailing love, eternal life with him. That's what Jesus is offering in John 6 to the people. And you know what they do? It says in John 6, 41, and the people grumble because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. This is, it's literally Exodus 16 all over again. Jesus is inviting the people to trust that he is sent from heaven to rescue them from their grumbling hearts and give us what our hearts truly long for, and yet we resist it. No, no, we want salvation on our own terms. And Jesus came down to make it clear, no, they're going to be on God's terms. And God's terms are, Jesus passes the test, every single one, and then he goes to the cross and takes our failure. Takes our, we, he got all A's. Jesus gets a report card, straight A's. And guess what he does with it? He gives it to you and you have all F's. And, you, and Jesus says, I take that from you. What? Yeah, I take that. What is, that means, yeah, exactly, it means that. It means the cross. It means judgment, condemnation, punishment, his just punishment for our rebellion against a holy God. And on the cross, Jesus was beaten and he was broken. Literally, his body was broken. Literally, his blood is spilled. Why? So that he could be our Passover lamb. Jesus passed the ultimate test. And he exchanges his perfect record with our record so that now through Jesus Christ, through faith in Christ alone, if we get his report card, we get his righteousness, we get to be able to say that in Christ we are forgiven, we are made new, we are his children. You say, well, I still don't pass the test. You don't have to. You got straight A's already. Now you can train. You can train without it crushing you. You can train without it filling you with pride because you're training. It's wilderness time, but you know it's coming. You know what's coming. You know promised land is coming. Are you struggling with God's goodness today? Do you doubt maybe that God will provide for your daily needs? I would say look at the cross. Remember the cross. The cross is the measure of God's love and generosity toward you. He has not withheld anything from you. The cross is the proof that he will give you everything he need, you need. And then the resurrection of Jesus, when he rose from the dead, it proves that if you trust him, that he is the bread of life, he will give you eternal life like he said. That his gift never runs out. Jesus will satisfy us now and literally forever. Even when life doesn't go the way we planned, we can have confidence. If we, if we face a, a trial, if we face something that's crushing, we, we can say, and, and even if it's, it's, you know, there's tears in our eyes, we can still say with Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, for these light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs them all. 
Do you need to trust Jesus today as your Savior? Like you say, you know what? I like the Bible. I want to follow God's rules. But God says, no, no, no. First, you got to have a relationship with me. I rescue you first out of grace, and then you learn how to grow in Christ. I can give you the power to do that. But without the power to do that, you, you don't have the bread. You don't have what it takes. Come to Jesus today. If you're a Christian, are you trusting him? Whatever test you're going through, you said your marriage is going through a test. I know, I know. He's going to be there to feed you, sustain you, and nurse you. My kids are driving me. I'm retired. My body's ailing. My body just got a diagnosis. He knows. You can keep trusting him for your daily needs, even as you hold on to Jesus, who meets your deepest needs. Let's pray. Father, we need you. We need you. We need your son, Jesus, to be the bread of life for us. We need your spirit to be the fountain of living water for us. Many of us came in knowing these truths, and yet our hearts... Our hearts need to be reminded yet again. Our heart needs to, needs to believe it, to live it. Would you allow your word, both written and the living word, Jesus himself, to make his home in our hearts that we might trust you for all that you have promised you would do. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.